Hey everyone, welcome back. It's good to have you here again. If you're new here, this is Ranching Reboot episode 152, the podcast that reboots your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that are operate them. I'm your host, Brian Alexander. You can find me on social media as Red Hills Rancher on every platform. Welcome to the world where conservation meets recreation, where every outdoor adventure contributes to the stewardship of our planet's precious landscapes. This is the mission of LandTrust.com a platform that bridges the gap between landowners and outdoor enthusiasts seeking the serenity and the thrill of private land experiences. As we delve into discussions on regenerative agriculture, sustainable land management, and the joys of connecting with nature on Ranching Reboot, we're proud to partner with Land Trust, a company that's as passionate about preserving the beauty of our natural world as we are. LandTrust.com offers an innovative solution for landowners to earn additional income by hosting respectful guests for activities like hunting, fishing, RV camping, and immersive farm tours. This not only provides financial benefit to landowners, but also encourages the conservation of wildlife habitats and promotes biodiversity. By choosing to book your next outdoor adventure through Land Trust, you're directly supporting these efforts, ensuring that the great outdoors remains vibrant and accessible for generations to come. But Land Trust is more than just a booking platform. It's a community of conservationists, adventurers, and stewards of the land. It's a place where you can find over a million acres of private land across 40 states, each offering unique experiences that you won't find anywhere else. Whether you're a hunter seeking the solitude and the challenge of hunt private experiences, a family looking for a unique camping spot away from crowded parks, or an angler in search of pristine fishing waters, LandTrust.com has something for everyone. For more information on how you can book your next adventure or list your land, visit LandTrust.com. You'll find the link in our show notes and also on my link tree. Join us in making a difference with every adventure, fostering a legacy of conservation through recreation. Together, we can ensure the great outdoors remains a source of wonder and joy for all. Support for the Ranching Reboot podcast is also provided by all my awesome patrons on patreon.com slash Rancher and the awesome subscribers on Spotify. I'm issuing a challenge. If I can get 20 new subscribers or patrons, I will turn off the automated ads the automated embedded ads for everyone. There's two really easy ways to show your support and help keep Ranching Reboot Podcast on the air. Head over to patreon.com slash Rancher and choose the level of support or go to the podcast page on Spotify and click listener support. There should also be some links in the show notes. You know, Valentine's Day is coming up soon. And if you're like me, chocolate, well, let's just say I haven't found a regenerative chocolate lit yet. And anything that isn't loaded with seed oils and corn syrup is pretty expensive. Instead of chocolate that'll get eaten in a few days, give the guests the wild-ass soap. If you don't know about wild-ass soap, everything is handmade by the Harris family in McCook, Nebraska. They make way more than just the 27 different kinds of soap, all made from tallow and lard sourced from our friends at Ranch Foods Direct. They make ranch balm to protect your skin, natural beef tallow deodorant to keep the funk away without toxic metals and chemicals. Not to mention all sorts of CBD-infused products from gummies to cold-ass muscle gel to help with those sore shoulders after cold days breaking ice for your livestock. Wild-Ass Soap Company. Check them out by clicking the link in the show notes or going to wildassoaps.com slash reboot. This week on Ranching Reboot, my guest is a young man I've known for quite a few years. He's been a longtime follower of mine on social media today. My guest today... Terrell Owens, an up-and-coming operator from North Central Kansas. Please welcome him to the podcast.
Well, good morning, Mr. Owens. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm awake. <laughs> the, the sun is shining and it ain't cloudy and it's supposed to be almost 70, so it's going to be a good day. Gosh, it's just such beautiful weather for January, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's, I, I'm still not going to say that, oh my gosh, this is so unusual because it's Kansas. So to me, there's really <laughs> nothing that's unusual. I mean, maybe a frost in July. Okay. Maybe that would be a little bit extreme. But outside of that, it, I think you're right. But the only things that would surprise me at this point would be snow in June or July. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, other than that, you know, 90 degrees in January. Okay. It's happened. I'm sure. Well, we were, we were talking a couple months ago, uh, back in the fall, not you and I, like me and the family, um, mm -hmm. we always get together for Thanksgiving. We always get together for Christmas, like everybody mm -hmm. does. Yep. And at Thanksgiving, it, it's about a third chance that you're going to be in a heavy coat. Yep. A third of a chance you're going to be in a hoodie and a third of a chance you're going to be in t-shirt and shorts. Yep. Yep. And Christmas is almost 50, 50. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, people say, Oh, I want a white Christmas. Well, Welcome to Kansas. You're lucky if you're not wearing shorts and a t-shirt on Christmas. This, this is, this was the first white Christmas I ever remember having. Oh, that's right. It actually snowed on Christmas. And that is, I, I mean, I am 32 years old and maybe there was one other one when I was a real little, like, otherwise we had two or three years in a row where it was almost 60 degrees on Christmas. I mean, that's what I'm saying. T-shirt and shorts. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, uh, I guess to make the weather relevant, um, it's been pretty moist down here, mm -hmm. late summer and fall. We're pretty moist, pretty similar up there. We, so we had, we actually had a relatively wet, well, I say wet, we had rain events into July through August, basically, but it'd come in, it's, it rained. I mean. An inch to two inches. And then we'd have two weeks of triple digits in a row. Drain two inches, triple digits, two weeks in a row. So basically that moisture lasted two to three days at a time. I mean, <clears throat> we even had a rain in right around Labor Day, right before the weekend of Labor Day. And it's like, oh man, we're going to have a wet fall. And then we had a week of triple digits and that moisture disappeared and we really didn't have much in the way of moisture until end of October. Maybe we had another moisture event. So, and it wasn't a lot, but since, since maybe December, it would have been sometime in December, we started getting some more moisture and things haven't been too terrible. I mean, we're wet, right? I mean, we're soft and wet right now, but everyone is for the most part, it seems like. So it's awful hard to cuss the mud after the last three years. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. It's just, I'm not, yeah, it, it's hard to cuss the mud, but when you, when you worked in a feedlot for 20 years, it's easy to cuss the mud though, too. <laughs> That's fair. Um, for everybody out there in podcast land, why don't you, uh, why don't you tell the audience where you're at actually? So we are 20 minutes North of Salina in Minneapolis, Kansas, not Minnesota. Um, so basically we're right in the middle of North central Kansas is what I would consider us. We're kind of in a, we're kind of in a funky spot weather-wise because we, 
we don't have the humidity that they have to the east of us, but we have a hell of a lot more humidity than they have to the west of us. So it's kind of the worst of both worlds when it comes to uh, uh, growing crops through the summer heat because we don't have the humidity to hold the moisture, but we don't cool off at night either. I mean, we'll go weeks at a time when it when it's really hot where if it's down to 72, you're thanking the Lord because it could be 75 when you wake up and it's just miserable. So my dad's talked about highway 81, mm -hmm. 30, 40 years as being kind of the line between civilization and not civilization. Yeah. And yeah. And we're, and we're right on that line. So right on the line. I'm, I'm significantly west of it, which is why I can drive yes. for two hours and not see anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and you don't have to go. I mean, if you get into just uh, like Lincoln County or Osborne County to the west of us, I mean, they're pretty sparsely populated. You got Mitchell County, which is Beloit, which that's got a pretty good sized population. But otherwise, if you go west of us, you have to get to like Russell County or Ellis County or something like that. But otherwise, it's you go north, it get it. You go north, it gets um kind of sparsely populated in areas, and but I mean, comparatively. Compared to us, I mean, we're, we're, we're in a sweet spot because we're close enough to Salina. So we have a population that commutes a lot to Salina. I mean, that's my wife commutes to Salina to work or they'll commute to maybe even Concordia, some people. So we're kind of a, we'd be no bigger of a town than say like Lincoln, if it, we weren't a sleeper community for Salina, basically. That's what I've always said. Do you have a Dollar General or a Walmart? We have a Dollar General. Okay. Yeah. Yep. That's so. You know, I can't even hardly think of a town over a thousand people that doesn't have one. Real, okay. 500. They put, yeah, one that's where I was. Yeah. 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 So if your town isn't big enough to have a dollar general, you're in a, you're from a really small town. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, I think the town population, it's right around 2000. I can't remember if it's above or just above or just below it. But like I said, we have a, in Ottawa County is a decent sized county. So that helps. I mean, we have, there's three, three high schools in the county, I mean, two school districts. So we're, we're very fortunate that where we are located and we're along I-35 or 81, whatever you want to call it, whatever the appropriate term is. Uh, so we get, we get a lot of people just because of that. And like I said, just proximity to Salina. So. Well, tell us, um, tell us about your operation and like maybe some, like, I guess, start with, uh, how you grew up education and how you ended up on the operation you're in and what it looks like. So, uh, I was born and raised in Western Kansas. So from Leota originally so far, Western Kansas. Um, then we moved to Minneapolis after my sixth grade year. Um, my dad has worked in feedlot, managed feedlot his whole life, basically. Um, and so that was kind of the context that I grew up in. Uh, then I went to, uh, so growing up, working in a feedlot, I basically wanted nothing to do with agriculture. When I got out of high school, I was, I had a hat that I wore all through high school. And the last day I worked in the feedlot before I went to Hayes for college, I threw the hat away and said, well, I won't be needing that again. Um, so I went to Hayes, majored in history, uh, because I enjoy history. I'm good at it. And our parents were pretty adamant about, uh, 
all of their kids getting their college education, right, wrong, or otherwise. Um, but so done that, uh, got married to high school sweetheart. She went to Hayes with me. Um, and then I graduated in four years and while in college, I worked in, a, I worked in, a worked at a lacrosse sale barn. Then I also worked for a, a rancher west of, yeah, west of Hayes because, uh, it's not about getting a job. Isn't about what you know, it's about who, you know. And so yes. I had connections to both. So my, my wife, my wife will tell you, I've basically never done an interview in my, I've done one interview in my life and I didn't end up going to work for him. So <laughs> you can ask her how much like, you suck basically is what she'll tell you. But I, Hey, I've never had to really interview for a job either. And I'm 45 years old. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's like I said, it's, it's, it's nice when your dad and your brothers know people and Hey, I, my brother worked for you this, or my brother-in-law worked for you. And yeah, I think that'll work. So, um, but so she had, she was still in school. She had another year in Hayes to get her ultrasound. So I came back home, we were already married and I worked at the feedlot while she was finishing school. And then she done her internship in Salina. And so I continued working at the feedlot and then, so then the catalyst to getting to getting the sheep was so maybe back up a little bit. So I was in, I was in school, still at Hayes. My mom handed me, uh, uh, a heritage breeds magazine. I don't, re I don't know the name of it, but it's the heritage breed association of the United States or North America, whatever. For sheep or for all species? For all species. Like it, okay. it's an organization, like life, livestock conservancy, livestock conservancy. That's the name of it. And so that, I don't know, for whatever reason, that kind of piqued my interest and I uh, was reading on that or whatever, and just kind of like, oh, that'd be kind of a fun side hobby, you know, eventually when I get older, you know, these are interesting. Uh, and then somehow, I don't know, I found Joel Salatin on YouTube and play. Huh. There is potential to make money in agriculture, not doing it necessarily like everybody else does. And so I was like, yeah, I might be interested in this farming thing, maybe after all. And then I, uh, Found Gabe Brown. Can I, can I stop you? Yep. Yep. So you said you grew up with your dad managing feedlots, mm -hmm. and you knew you didn't want to work in ag. Is that because of feedlots? Well, yeah. But I mean, well, so both of my parents, or my both sets of my grandparents were farmers. Um, growing up, we still, uh, my we had a small cow herd. Uh, my dad and brother had a small cow herd. Uh, my grandma still has. I don't know, a couple of sections of land uh, that she rents out down and down out, out at Leota. And so we grew up around farming, like growing up when I was really little, I wanted to farm. I mean, that's what I wanted to do. And then after working at the feedlot, basically starting in seventh or eighth grade and doing that all summer and weekends throughout the winter, I was like, no, I, and I, and I want to necessarily say that our parents encouraged us to pursue agriculture. That's why they wanted us to go get an education. Um, so I didn't know what I was going to do with history, but by golly, I was going to call it and I was going to major in history. To be honest with you, I wanted to get it because I, I grew up, so I came to a age, uh, like kind of discovered politics from Ron Paul. And so honest, to be honest with you, I kind of wanted to get into politics. That was my goal kind of, cause I was, when I started, I was also majoring in political science because I was inspired and, uh, by Ron Paul. And so that's, I kind of came up with that as far as, uh, 
my political out- outlook. But uh, so found Gabe Brown, though, halfway through college. And it's like, OK, now that's a lot more familiar to the agriculture that I grew up around, but it's still not the same. And it made sense as far as the cover crops and integrating livestock and the diversity. But I had already uh, started majoring in history and I wasn't going to switch to ag. Just wasn't going to happen. So I finished my degree. But uh, for some reason, I had got in my head of I was going to, I wanted sheep. Eventually, we were going to have sheep. Um, but so we, so I got out of college and me and my brother, we done a market garden for a summer, a little market garden. Didn't really make any money. Worked our asses off. Didn't make any money. Um, we done some pastured poultry. We done the, ch- the, the, uh, chicken tractor with the broilers. I think that one summer we raised three, 300 or so chickens. Um, but it got to the point for me, I was like, I can't do both plus work full time. So I kind of just took over the broiler part for the rest of the summer. And then he finished the summer with the market garden, which whatever, that was fine. And then I don't know, we, I kind of just sat back, but I was kind of managing, I don't know if I'd say manage, but I was putting together mixes for the feedlot on, uh, the hay mixes essentially. And I got to be the tractor jockey for the little bit of farm ground we had. And so I went to soil health to you. I think it's the first soil health to you. And like I said, I had this idea that I wanted sheep. Okay. So, uh, uh, was listening to a panel and there was this guy with a really funny accent and I really couldn't place where he was from. Uh, his name was Nick Moss. Um, but I uh, know that guy. Yeah, I know. I know. He, he's going to love this if you listen to it. Cause I've already told him he gets blamed for everything, but I listened to him on a panel and he was grazing sheep on cover crops on farm ground. It's like, well, yeah, that would work. Why the hell didn't I think of that? Or why did it click with whatever Gabe Brown was doing? But for whatever reason, it never had clicked. And so I talked to him a little bit after, uh, his panel got done and, uh, went up in the stands. Cause I knew there were some, uh, I'd seen an advertisement for some sheep for sale and went up in the stands and called the banker about getting a loan and then called the sheep guy about getting sheep. And two weeks later, we came home with our first 20 head. We, I take that back. We had gotten eight sheep earlier because we had a, we had puppies born from a Pyrenees Anatolia dog. So like, okay, we already have the puppy. We're not going to go buy the dog. We'll go buy the sheep to get them bonded to the dog. But so two <laughs> weeks later after soil health, you, we came home with 20 more, uh, they were Rambolets. And, uh, so that's how we got started was because Nick Moss, I was like, I'm done waiting. We're going to do this. So from there, we, we raised the, we lambed out the 20 head of Rambolets for, oh, that was in March. And about two weeks into that, I told Jessica, I said, there's no way in hell we're going to make money at the end of this deal. Cause we were having to feed them and it sucked lambing in March and cause we'd have freezing rain come in. And I mean, I was, I was doing everything right. I was feeding the ones that were with twins, I was feeding them a little bit more because we they'd been ultrasounded for singles and multiples. So I separated them and feeding the ones with twins more, um, separating them out as they land. So I had the ones that hadn't lambed in one pin and the ones that had lambed in another pin. I mean, we were doing everything right. I mean, and we got along fine on lambing, but, uh, nothing against Rambolets, but they suck. <laughs> and so we were, we wanted to get a, get hair sheep and I found a, called a guy out at Deerfield who'd had sheep for years and years. And it just so happened that he had painted desert sheep, which is exactly what we had with the first H sheep. Okay, and, and painted that. 
that's a sheep from the southwest right they so they were originally bred as a game sheep in texas okay like on a game ranch because they're they they're i don't know they have there's like six or five or six different breeds that they use to make them but uh they're much more of a primitive sheep i mean i could show you a picture of when we first got sheep and the painted desert sheep we had are literally half the size of the rambolets i mean literally half the size but we went down uh, he just happened to have some we were originally going to buy 50 head we ended up buying i think 30 because where we were living at the time uh we ended up having to move um and so we lost our little bit of land base we had. It wasn't much, but we ended up having to move. We were just ratting it. But we had some, they happened to be bred that first fall. Then they weren't supposed to. So I don't know. We had like 10 or 12 that lambed. They were so much easier lambing. I mean, the babies were up in less than five minutes of nursing. It's like, oh, this is going to be nice. And so we raised hair sheep. We raised them and we started breeding them up with a Dorper cross and stuff like that. And. I rented some right at the feedlot, dry land farm ground. And so we were running along the, on that, on cover crop and stuff. And, uh, so combination of dry lot and dry lot and cover crop. Um, after that first year, we never really dry lotted them again. I was able to graze year round. I grazed like the, the feedlot pivots during the winter because we'd have a, like rye or two to Kaylee. If we could get it planted early enough, I could just run them out on that all winter and then maybe uh, just supplement them hay on certain parts of the fields, like, especially when we got to our dry land, um, I, it was kind of like dry lotting, but there was lots of residue. Um, I would feed them with, um, so the feedlot had access, I had access to a bale processor at working the feedlot. So I just bale process some hay, then just kind of creep feed the fence, just slowly move it forward about five feet every day or whatever. And so we'd maybe do that. I don't know. Most years we probably did that six months not six months sorry 60 days maybe can, just i i hate i hate to stop you can you maybe describe that when you're with the bail processor and and creep in the fence every couple of days can you maybe just go back and kind of describe that so people have a better so, picture so we would uh so for our fencing we used um electric net fencing from premier one so they are 164 foot i think is what yeah their lengths are so that would be our paddock size, 164 by 164 on average. So when it came time to where we were out of feed or whatever, or just the weather is too hard and whatever. So we were going to be feeding hay. So I would put out, say, six bales at a time, the, about the width of that fence wide and run them vertical, go and say, if they're going east-west. Okay. So I got to have a fence that's north-south, and I'm going to slowly... Uh, I'm going to have it just slightly shorter. So it'll probably be like only going a hundred and say 55 feet across so I can fold the ends in. So then every day I'd start at one end, start moving my fence and just slowly move the fence forward, make a little kick of the hay, a little bit out of the way. And just, my fence would just sit there. And so I was just slowly moving the fence forward over the windrows of hay. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's why I say it was basically a creep feed, but I would load the area with residue and nutrients. It's basically like bale grazing without the bale. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I was thinking. Like it's, it's yeah. kind of like a bale strip grazing type yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because I found out pretty quick that sheep really don't like eating hay. 
Like they just really don't. They, they would rather graze any time that they can. I mean, I've seen them, they'll be grazing da- damn near on like a twig or a stick. And it's like, I don't know what the hell you're getting out of that, but whatever. So, but gumming the bark off of it or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, basically, I mean, it is like, who am I to say? Um, but so that was kind of our, if we did have to really feed, that's how we'd feed. And so we'd, we'd get a lot, a lot of residue, a lot of trash because they waste a lot of hay. I mean, they waste a, a lot. So, um, but ideally that's not what we would, ideally we would try and have them grazing. Um, last year we grazed them on, I grazed them on Milo stocks and, um, um, and then just supplement, supplemented them with, uh, Oh, hey. So, um, but so that, I mean, that the sheep were basically the center of our operation. Um, I tried growing Milo two years. Yeah, it didn't really, uh, I, I, I'm really cheap. I'm a, I always, you know, you've heard of a shoestring budget. Oh, I had a Velcro budget. I mean, okay. so <laughs> Milo Velcro lace, new balance shoes. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, so I, I would, uh, my money was spent basically on seed and then I would spend just enough money on herbicide to get, try and get stuff established essentially to terminate what was there before to try and get what I wanted there to grow. So, and, and you were looking at, at the Milo as a commodity crop, as a cash crop, not yeah, as yeah. a grazing crop. Yeah. Yep. And then just be able to, able to graze it after the fact of, but just to help just to help cash flow, help with cash flow instead of just relying on the sheep type of thing. So and, did it work? If I would have, I, if I could have maybe spent just a little bit of money, it would have worked. If I would have spent maybe, if I would have spent money on maybe 20 or 30 pounds of say nitrogen, I probably would have had a pretty decent Milo crop for not a whole lot of money. Cause I mean, I was averaging, I don't know, 20 bushels, 23 bushels is all average, but I didn't have squat for, uh, inputs in it. Right. I mean, so, so when I'd have, I'd have the neighbors cut and they're like, well, we had a field that only made 20 and I bet I spent a whole lot less money on it on mine than what you guys done. I mean, so it was just, I don't know. It's so, so with, it's because, so with land rent between land rent and the price of cover crop seed has, I mean, price of cover crops have drastically went up in the time from when I first started in five years to like now, I mean, they've, so like when I would have started, I think oats or just, let's just say rye, rye would have been like 10 cents a pound. This year, rye is 30 cents a pound. Okay. That's more than, that's more than doubling. That's 150% increase in the cost. And you can just take that across the board on every cover crop species. So when I'm pretty heavily relying on cover crops, I got to really pick and choose how much money I'm spending on my seed and balancing my species need because it's still got a cash flow. You know, I, I think I saw this coming a couple of years ago. I, I'm not going to put my finger on it when, but the more people that want to grow grow cover crops, that's going to put more demand on the people that grow the cover crops for the seed. And as much as we like to think a lot of these cover crops 
that we want to grow in, you know, a seven way blend or, you know, a 13 way grazing blend in order to get that seed there, those are probably monocultures just saying. And I think that, you know, because soil health is soil health, regenerative agriculture, cover crops, grazing, cover crops, I think it's getting, it's getting adopted like so fast that these companies, like I'll just name green cover because they come to mind like green right. cover they're probably having a hard time keeping up with some of their cover crop seeds um i forget what it was i just i ran across something the other day like there's there's a common cover crop seed that's just simply not available right now mm -hmm. because well, it's already been sold well there's there so it's it's a combination of one yes there has been an increase in demand two there in certain areas where they grow cover crop seed, like say like the Northwest, there has been, I don't know about this year, but there was a year where they basically came up short of production. They had weather factors that just limited the production. And so you put that in combination with increased demand plus increase of crop costs of production across the board, well, it's going to get passed on. It's just, it got passed on in a hurry. I mean, type of thing. I mean, it really just, I mean, you basically have four, four factors hitting the cover crop seed business all at once between demand, cost of production increases, plus weather factors that limited what production there was. So yeah, it's been, it's been tricky lowering seed costs, um, finding different seeds that are cheaper. I mean, like this last year, instead of planting cowpeas, I planted soybeans because soybeans were half the cost of the cowpeas like i what came to mind immediately was patented monsanto seeds and i know you didn't plant that is did, no <laughs> is that something you're worried about would be getting like some gmo soybean contamination and and have monsanto get mad at you no because you can do it as long as you don't sell the seed okay whoever buys them they can so they were i think what they were uh was they were like group seven soybeans that were basically excess that they got to get rid of. So I, I, I don't know if they were, I'm, I'm assuming they were non-GMO. I don't know. I really don't care. They were only 70 cents a pound. So I wasn't going to complain. I just planted them and we, we ended up uh, actually swathing and bailing what that was in as, as a cash crop. Cause Hey, Hey was a, I made more money selling hay this year than I ever did growing Milo. I made a whole lot more money growing a hay crop because price of hay was so good this year. I I bet. And well, it was it was volatile. It was real volatile yes. summer because yes. like some areas would get yeah. rains and you know yeah. price would drop and then a week later it would yeah nobody else would get rain and it'd shoot right yeah. back up fifty yeah another fifty bucks. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But I mean it was it was a lot lower risk because it's like, okay, if there's a few weeks, gonna get swathed and bailed. <laughs> so no it was it worked cost of swath and mailing is pretty darn expensive but uh i mean that's just that's anything whether it's com whether you're having custom harvest or swath and bailed it all costs something so well i i've told this story probably three or four times on the podcast but i had a friend down in oklahoma just about an hour south of me and this was like mid-june you know when when it start after it started raining they're trying to get wheat out of the fields. 
-hmm. Well, the insurance man came out and adjusted the wheat to basically 20 and said, you got to cut it or Mm -hmm. do something with it. And they couldn't get the spray plane there in time to spray the pigweeds, kosher and crabgrass. So my buddy, Tim, he's just like, well, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. I'll buy it standing in the field. Didn't pay a whole lot for it, but he hired the chopper and a, you know, silage chopper and a hauling crew. Mm -hmm. He said he put like 7,000 tons in the bunk for like 40 bucks a ton. Mm -hmm. And it tested at 13 and a half percent. Right. I mean, you get some cheap hay with that. You can keep cow alive. You might even gain some weight over there. You know, that's, that's pretty good ration for the price. Yeah. 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 And I think about like, I have a neighbor that had a field of oats and a field of wheat, both pigweeds, crabgrass, and kosher. He hired the spray plane and then he, then he raked and bailed it himself. And I'm just wondering, like, I, I almost feel like hiring the spray plane and then bailing it and selling it. I think he made less money than just if he would have just you know, had it chopped well, and put in the bunk and fed it to cows. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure someone told him that it was a good idea to go spray it, but I don't know. Probably the seven most dangerous words in agriculture. We've always done it this way and this yeah, is, yeah, we're going to yeah. keep doing it. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Something like that. So. Um, what do you think about GPS callers? Mm-hmm. I think in certain areas, maybe they would work. So in our, so, so the whole reason why I was using that fence was because I had no permanent infrastructure. So the reels, I tried messing with the reels in combination with my electric net fence. It just as best to keep on using the net, um, in larger areas, maybe there could be something to it. Um, I don't know, because I'm all, I mean, I, I think there might be potential. I think they just have to get the technology better. They have to get the battery life better or something or, cause see, and see, my thought has been for a while, what if instead of, I mean, if you had in combination with GPS callers, what if you had basically step in posts, you just go and set, set in step in post every hundred feet or whatever, you don't put up wire and it basically makes a force field essentially from post to post to post. I mean, to me, I don't know. I'm not an engineer. My mind, my mind doesn't work like that, but that has crossed my mind is what would happen if we just eliminated at least one step of the process of putting up fats and all you had to do is go put in 10 posts to fence in an acre. And then they work in combination with the callers or something like that. I don't know. Interesting idea. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking a fence post with, you know, a little solar panel and a little sensor on them and right. you know, they have right. maybe have to have their own brain or they have to have something on them that the caller is going to be able to see or sense to know where that barrier is. Mm-hmm. I, I'm with you. I think there's, there's some, there's some exciting things about the GPS callers. It's very exciting things. I think there's also some really big problems. Right. Um, you know, Batteries need another technological leap. So it brings the weight down, brings, you know, then you can do more things if you can carry more electricity. The thing that I would be most fascinated by, and like this would work great for sheep too, 
is just, just give me a movement. Give me a movement and activity state. Like every minute. So I can tell if that animal is moving, grazing, sleeping, resting, drinking, whatever. Mm -hmm. Tell me where it's at. Now multiply that by 500 animals and put them in a paddock. And then you get a heat map of where they have been grazing all day and where they've spent right. their time. And then you say, oh, well, those lazy, lazy suckers didn't go use the west end of that paddock. Right. So you fence off the east end and you make them go over there. Right, right, right. So I, that's, I, I get really excited when I start hearing about, you know, grazing heat maps because that's what's, that's what really starts to excite me is, I mean, and with data like that, we go out to the pasture. What did the cows eat today? And then we can start to figure out maybe why they ate that that right, specific right. day instead of another day. Right. So that, those are the kind of things that, that I start to get excited about. But then again, you know, there's all uh, the EID mandates floating around again. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I can see a dark dystopian future where at birth, everything gets a tag with an EID and they get a collar on them from birth. Right. And, and then all your animals tracking data is on the internet. And of course we know the internet is perfectly secure. Nobody's, oh yeah. Nobody's data ever gets compromised. No, nope. nobody ever nope. gets hacked. Well, and you know, it's the whole G so here's what comes into my mind with the whole, with this whole uh, GPS collar and, uh, the, it'll tell them where they can go. Me and you both know that animals are visual creatures, that livestock ruminant animals are visual creatures. Okay. We both know that if they get used to, there's a fence there, they're not going to cross it unless they don't see that fence anymore. So what is going to trigger an animal in their mind to go across that point? Because they have no visual connection to it. Pressure. You would have to have, you'd have to generate. So, okay. So they have a mental pressure because they've been trained to think that there's a fence there. Right. Right. And now you want them to cross that fence, but you haven't, you want them to cross that boundary. So there has to be some kind of a counter pressure applied somewhere. And okay. I, I, I could maybe see that as a training thing. Like, yeah, you know, it, it, I don't know with sheep, but with cows for 10 to 14 days. And you will have all the animals on whatever program you want them on. As long as you're mm -hmm. consistent with your training every single day. And you can really shorten that down if you're, you know, super consistent. I think when we went strip grazing with the bat latches, I think by the fourth or fifth day, everybody was on program. Right. Yeah. I could just go sit and watch the gate open. And as soon as the gate would open, all 125 yeah. of them would just yeah. go. Yeah. Yeah. So training I, I think a lot about training cattle and about how intelligent cattle are and how they interact with their environment and i'm, I'm with you cattle cattle sheep they're they're very visual i mean yeah somehow it, they can they can see that eighth of an inch steel yes, cable from yeah. a half a mile away right right and so that that's why i struggle with like how are you going to get them to overcome a invisible barrier that's where i'm like I, i'm sure there's a way to do it Someone will figure it out. I just know, I mean, if you have cattle that aren't used to hot wire, like you don't, you don't move them all the time. I mean, we've had it where we try to get them out of a gate and they'll just sit there at the gate because, well, that wire is there. 
because they've only been in and out of it. They've never, they've basically never been in and out of it. And so that's why I'm like, so how are you going to get them to respect the boundary, respect the caller? Because eventually they will be, well, I'm not going over there because every time I do, I get buzzed or whatever. But now you want me to go over there? How do I know it's safe to go over there? I mean, that's, exactly. that, that's where I, that's where I struggle with just knowing. Cause yeah, the sheep, the sheep, it took, I don't know, maybe three days before when I first started grazing them, as far as just opening the fence and they all run through. I mean, it was sheep. It's really, I always say sheep are smarter than cattle. Um, I can say that I, I, I've seen enough, I've seen cattle do enough stupid shit working in a feedlot. So I've never seen sheep do as much stupid crap as I've seen cattle do. But sheep, if you, and it makes sense because of what an old timer told me, I, when we moved sheep, I had to be the lead. They would follow me. So I would be out in front and someone else would have to bring up the pressure, bring it to the back, make sure that kept on following. It would have been easier a lot of times for my wife to lead and me to be on the four wheeler running back and forth if I needed to, to keep them going. But they, they would look at her and go, what are you doing? He's over here. Yeah. Who are you? I mean, I, yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, if I was there, we literally had that one time. It was one of the first times we kind of let him out of the fence to move him someplace. She opened the gate and they just stood there and looked at her. And I was behind them. I was like, well, I guess we're going to have to switch. So I just jog out in front of them and they just followed me. I mean, and, and I'm sure cattle are, cattle are very similar. I've seen it before as far as if you do it enough, if someone hollers, like, come on or whatever, they'll go, they'll go for that person. If it's someone else doing the same thing, no, nah, we're not used to you. We don't know who you are. Right. <laughs> I just tell big Steve to bring him and he brings him. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you always have a, you always have a leader and that's, it's, it was the same. It's fame with sheep. There's always someone that's out front. There's someone whose attention you get. As soon as they see what you're doing, they're moving and everybody else is like, oh, oh, we better go. We better go. So. Yeah, I, I, I just struggle with the barriers thing, the invisible barrier. And I think there's a place for them. I just, like I said, someone, someone smarter than me is going to have to figure it out, put it that way. Yeah, I, I agree. And someone more wealthy than I is going to have to pay. Yes, one. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it's a tall ask to pay, you know, 50 cents a day for subscription for one of those callers. Yeah. Then either buy the hardware or lease it at another fee. And you know, it, you do that for two years, you know, for a production cycle, you're going to put a hell of a lot of cost in that beef. Well, you're, you're looking at an additional, so 300 times 50, that by itself was $150 at 50 cents a day. Yep. Add it to the back of that calf. Are you getting paid an extra hundred fifty dollars, and that's lowballing it? I mean, I, well, okay, so maybe not look at it that you need to get another hundred fifty dollars out of that calf. Are you going to save well, right hundred and fifty dollars right. because yeah. of that collar on that calf? Yeah, I doubt it. Yeah, yeah, like, right. Yeah, because it, anybody that says they could save hundred and fifty dollars by putting a GPS collar on their calf, show me the math. Right. Because you're, yeah, that's $150 per animal. If you spend, say, $3,000 on hardware, well, you spread that out across a herd of, say, 100 over 10 years, five, even five years, what did that come out to per head? 
a hell of a lot less than $150 per year. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it, when I look at them, when I look at those callers, all I see is a device that's trying to save more labor. Right. Because it's a technology that does something that you and I can do on foot with our livestock. Right. I mean, we're controlling right. moving old livestock. That's, that's what they're for. You and I can yep. do that on foot. We can do it with a fence. We can do it with a four-wheeler. We can do it with a horse. Or we can do it with a GPS collar that gets a signal from outer space. Right. And, and that's always perfectly reliable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that technology is perfect. It never fails, yes. right? Yes, never fails. Yeah. yeah. And and nobody, you know, it's it's perfectly secure. Your data is fine. Nobody, yeah. you know, nobody ever get that data. Yeah. Nobody, everybody, nobody will ever be able to hack into it. I mean, you want to talk about a, a, a crappy scenario, like, okay, so call it, those callers do kind of become a widespread thing and people are using them. Well, let's just say, you know, you've got 500 cows grazing on a circle close to I-70. Right. And they're being held in by one of those no fences. Mm -hmm. Somebody hacks that, just turns off the fence and or redraws the border to where all the cows move onto the highway. Right. Well, right. That'd be fun. Yeah. Good, good thing Kansas is free range state, right? <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. I was just thinking of like the, of the legal mess that you would be in and trying to prove like, no, I, right. I had a fence there. It was, it was right. like a digital yeah. fence because these digital collars and then somebody hacked it and they got out. I don't know how well, a, that, I don't think a judge would have too much of a sense of humor about something like that. Probably not. Probably. I, I don't want to find out. Hey, I got to take a quick bathroom break. Hey, too you know much what? coffee this morning. Glad you said that. I'll take one too. So we'll pause right here. We'll be right back. And we're back. I think next time I have to list my occupation and write it out, I'm going to write reverse coffee filter. Because my, yes. super, <laughs> my superpower is I turn coffee back into water. Yep. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah. That's, yeah. I only had like two cups this morning because I'm not drinking coffee right now because otherwise I'd be going to need one more break. But um, I do want to bring a little bit of closure to our operation. And then if you have any other things you want to talk about as far as the operation, uh, but just to be full transparent. So, um, so this year was actually the last year that we had sheep. We actually got rid of them all in, um, it's like October, wasn't it? Yeah. I think it was in of October. Yep. We ended up getting rid of them all simply because we lost half the farm ground that we were managing. Um, but, uh, so what, what I, happened? I did, did somebody lease it out from under you? Uh, did you decide to go a different route, or if you don't mind? Um, so I was most of the farm ground that we were renting was uh, the feedlot dry land, and the feedlot went out of business this summer. So things changed, and so we're just we just wasn't going to venture down that path with whatever happens in the future with that ground, and with new employment, it didn't work as well. Trying to uh. Uh, take care of livestock. We still have just a, we still, we have a whopping 30 acres at the moment that we are managing. Um, and it's 15 minutes, 20 minutes from town. And so that really wasn't going to be conducive to, uh, going and taking care of sheep 
with 40 minutes round trip every single day. So it worked really well working at the feedlot and having the sheep right there, either right there by the feedlot or south side, south side of the creek of the feedlot. It worked really well for me and my family as far as I could either go pick the kids up and run right back out and go take care of sheep. Or if we got done a little early, I could run out and move the sheep. I mean, my, my labor was spent moving fence. I mean, that, that was what my time was spent on. I did not hardly deal with the sheep per se. Uh, we handled the sheep basically three times a year, something like that. We'd work them, we'd ban, we'd castrate the boys, give them a shot of CBT and a shot of Musi, and then we'd sort them and we'd tag them. We'd tag them at birth. So I guess that's, that's the first one. We tag boy, girl at birth, and then we'd sort them for sale barn. Other than that, we never really handled the sheep. So that's why I always tell people sheep are easier than cattle. If, especially if you had the infrastructure, if you had the setup, I always say I was born in the wrong country for sheep. Uh, if I was in Australia or New Zealand, something like that, it's like, oh yeah, this is, this would be easy. I mean, but we, we didn't drench them. We didn't, we never really had any sick sheep. I mean, we just, we didn't have problems with them, but it was because of the way we were managing. So. Do you think a lot of the problems that people think about when they think about sheep on pasture was, is just outdated from, you know, the thirties, forties and fifties when a lot of folks did transition to sheep and, and just tried to do set stock like they do with cows. I think, I think it's, it would be a combination of that, of, yeah, set stock, genetics and People don't realize how much, uh, forage it takes to run a sheep. I mean, I came to the, what, what my figures were in our environment and our system, it takes about 1.7 acres per you, which I'm, when I say to you, I'm throwing her babies on with her for whenever she has them, I'm saying about 1.7 acres. If you want to graze year round, you'd have that 1.7 acres per you. Okay. Good. Can you put that in context and in cow numbers? Uh, so our sheep average about a hundred, our ewes average probably 120, 130 pounds. So what would that be about 17 acres for a cow? If a thou, it'd be more than that. Cause most cows weigh more than a thousand pounds. Right. I mean, most people that say they have thousand pound cows, they yeah. haven't had a thousand pound cow on a scale yeah. in 10 years. So probably 20 acres, 20 plus acres year round grazing in our environment for if you are not, if you are grazing for the soil, that's what it takes. Okay. And I always, and I always told people, I don't get any benefit by taking more because there's no nutrition in that bottom half anyways. And the sheep pick up parasites. The sheep don't do as well. Like well, for the, me, it was, it, it's easy to just leave it because it doesn't do them any good anyways. I think it's the same for cattle. Like when the cattle right. are eating the top half of the plant, they're not getting down there and they're not, not getting all the disease and pathogens that are living a little closer to the soil. Right. right? I haven't had a, I haven't had disease pressure or any problems or pink eye or foot rot in, in years. I don't doctor anything. Right. right. Now I'm not saying we never had any parasites. If we had used that got wormy, if I could catch them with my crook. I would catch them, dose them with safeguard, 
just to keep him alive, maybe to get to the bar. Probably 70% of the time I couldn't catch him. So I wanted to douse him and they would die and they became fertilizer. And I never lost an ounce of sleep over it because to quote Mike Wallace, a, especially a coal looking you ain't worth shit. If they're, if they're skin and bones, they're not worth nothing. And you're not going to put that weight back on them without spending a whole lot more money than what they're worth. So. Yeah, that's, I guess that is the thing with sheep is they're cheap, but because relatively they're, they're relatively cheap yeah. and you know, and everybody's numbers are going to be different. And sometimes like a sheep may have a lower profit per unit than a cow, but it make up for it with volume. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with a cow, you know, there's guys that get into arguments about a feedlot Z tag versus, you know, the feedlot Z tag for a buck and a quarter versus a freaking EID tag for 450. Like th- they'll nickel and dime those, those numbers down on their cows. Right. Right. Well, I'll, I would nickel and dime that on my sheep. If, if I have, cause so we have to, for sheep, we have to use a scrapey tag. Right. When we go to the sale barn. I learned pretty quick. I'm not putting that scrapey tag in until they're on the trailer going to the sale barn because that's, they're $2.50 a pop. Okay. I'm not going to waste them. I'm not getting paid extra. I'm not making that $2.50 back. And if we're going to have to do an EID, well, I'm sure as hell not making $4.50 back. I mean, and, and I would argue that if, if you look at a cow unit versus a U, a U unit, the U is more profitable because she's raising on average 1.8 of herself versus one. That's, that's true. I'm just thinking like cost to run the mother. Right. You right. know, cause yes, yes. You know, it sheep, your numbers are right there with everything else. I've heard that sheep are seven to 10 sheep per, for a cow. Okay. Yeah. So now, now bear with me a minute. So if we have to put the same EID tag in a sheep at mm-hmm. 150 and a scrapey tag at $2 at 650 of cost, we just put into that sheep. Okay, let's say we had to do the same thing to the cow, or let's just say we're baller and we put EID tags in both ears. So mm-hmm. now we spent $9 on that cow. So we spent $9 on the cow, but the equivalent weight of sheep, you need to take what we spent times 10. Yeah, 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 yep. And yep. any any extra little bit of cost in that sheep really, really hurts the bottom line because you're depending on volume for turnover. Well, and that's, I mean, that's part of the reason why the last year I quit feeding mineral. I just switched to salt because price of mineral, I mean, a cheap mineral was $20 by this year when two years ago was 16. It's like, well, I'm not getting, I'm not getting paid extra. I mean, I'm not, I'm not getting paid more to feed my cheap mineral. They're going to have to figure out how to do it without it. I mean, that's, that's how I looked at it. What salt did you use? What did you go to? The just the Canopolis salt. Or Green, not Canopolis. Kansas Independent. Yeah, yeah, the blue, blue and white bag. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think the yeah. the the blue stuff is the stuff to get, not the green bag, because the green bag has a um, yellow Prussia cake something in there to help prevent it from help keep the salt from sticking together. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. 
and Steve Campbell allows that that's not the best stuff for cows. It's not the worst, but it's right, not the right. best. So, I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I was right by doing that. I just, that's how I justified it to myself was I'm not getting paid more to buy sheep mineral. I mean. And well, I, I kind of want to back this up. I don't know what cow mineral costs anymore because I've just been using, you know, I've got a little bit of Kansas gray left. Uh, mm -hmm. I use the last of my C90 right there at the end of summer. Been feeding up Kansas gray. Um, and, you know, I, I remember, I remember when I was a kid, got work for my dad. He was the old foreman on the, on a ranch next door that sold. And when it sold, he needed a job and he came over to work for my dad. And he was a big believer in salt and he wasn't mm -hmm. really a big believer in mineral. And um, I guess it was early nineties and, you know, salt was getting salt was kind of going up a little bit and it was all, and that was when the purified white salt was coming on the market and salt blocks. And that's what everybody mm -hmm. switched to instead of sea salt. Well, that's also when we started having, you know, started developing health problems in our cows. I think anyway. Um, mm -hmm. But it's just, it's interesting that now we've come full circle. Right. Right. You know, like all these fancy mineral blends, we've all realized they're not all they've cracked up to be, and you don't always know what the hell's in them. Sea salt seems to be the best deal. And, and they're hell of expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, do, you mind, do you mind saying how much you paid a bag for Kansas Gray or a pallet? Or a bag would have been... Probably like three, four bucks. No, I think it was up to six because I was bitching about it. Because okay. it was it was originally like four, I think. This, I think this last year it was up to six a bag. They must have really raised their prices. I think it was. Uh, can't remember when I went and got those five pallets. Would have been I guess like two two and a half years ago. I went up there and got right. five pallets. Right. And it was, it was, very inexpensive. It was under a thousand dollars for yeah. five pallets. Yeah. So yeah. I'm I and and yeah, two two and a half years ago, yeah, it was three fifty to four dollars a bag. But yeah, just again, price of everything. Even salt, yeah. I was like, price of salt even gone up two dollars. This is ridiculous. It's, you're not somebody else told me probably like six months ago that, that Canopolis had really raised their prices. And what they're they were kind of telling me about like it was kind of in the range where you're telling me and Maybe I better call them and see what they're charging for salt these days. Yeah. Yeah. You better get it before it goes up to eight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, Redmond's probably not going to get a whole lot cheaper either. Yeah. Right. Right. No, I, I, I think they're all pretty good. I think Redmond's or Kansas Independent. I think. Right. I think they're both good. C90. Yeah. I mean, it could have, it's, it's modern water. So it can have anything all sorts of modern contaminants in it. Right. Right. It could not saying it does. But, so let's see, what are we? Um, so what's next? So if you've, if you lost most of your ground, what are you looking at? Uh, what, what are you going to try to put together for this year? Or if anything with livestock? Well, probably nothing on the livestock side. I'm then uh, going to be working more with a uh, Nick on, Trying to do a better job of growing a cash grain crop. Um, and actually, you know, 
managing it to be as profitable as possible. Not as high yielding as not as high yielding as possible, but as profitable as possible. And so that means, you know, using probably going to be growing corn is what the plan is. Um, and like I said, trying to do as good a job as we can on that for as little money as possible. Um, and then trying to, trying to work out something to do a, maybe, like I said, it, it might not happen. So I guess I won't get into it, but maybe another alternative lifestyle. We'll just leave it at that because that's a lot, it's still up in the air on that ground. So I won't, I won't get too far into depth into that, but. Another alternative livestock, like that sounds like alpacas or some shit. No, 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 not, 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 nothing that crazy. Just something, something much smaller. If you know what I mean, that flies around. Birds? No, no, no. Even smaller. There was someone, there was someone that talked about it at no till this year. Bees. You're going to do bees. Maybe, maybe we'll see. We we tried to we tried to catch some last year. We don't think we did. There's still a box up on on the ground, but don't think we ever caught any. But maybe we'll catch some in the box this this spring. So we'll see. But like I so said, that's that's a lot lot up in the air. I still got to convince the other landowner to go along with it. So, but we'll see. You know, people a lot of landowners will do an awful lot if you promise them a couple jars of fresh honey. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I said, it's, it, and that's, that's the thing. There's, we're to the, we're to the point, we're not going to get, the only thing I'd maybe do is I, if I had the right setup or something or had access to more ground, I'd maybe consider grazing some cattle through the summer type of thing on it. Like whatever, whatever made economic sense to go by. But as far as sheep, we're not buying sheep again until we get our name on a piece of ground because two times we've had our, operation turned upside down because of losing stuff so we are to the point where it's like not doing it again and i'm not gonna lie i was not complaining not having to take care of black stock when it was negative 15 outside so <laughs> yes i heard that yeah so so i'm i'm hoping i ha- i don't know i don't even want to say i have any leads but i've talked to a few people locally about potentially written ground and if they do they do and if they don't well i guess we'll just see what the future holds so that's okay. it's not easy do you go to burlington next week no no i wish i wish yeah. but no i can I, I can only make it to about one conference a year and so that's why i always try to make it make sure i make it to wichita so well and soil health you is next door oh yeah i know i know but Again, if I can only go to one, if I can only take time off for one and have my, have my wife stay home, keep the kids overnight by herself for one, I'm going to make it Wichita. So I think that's fair. I'll make sure to harass Nick for you, for you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. What else you got going on this year? Oh, well, I'm on the conservation board, so. Try to keep busy do- with doing different stuff, like doing different stuff with that. We had, we had Jay Fear last summer for two days. So that was good. And we're going to have another speaker, uh, coming, coming up for a day. Uh, not going to say who yet because we don't have all the details worked out yet, but, uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, you can follow the conservation district at Ottawa County Conservation District 
on Facebook and we have a YouTube channel. So if you have, uh, if you missed out on Jay Pure, we have his sessions, his field days or his, our field stops with him from last year there. And so, but yeah, we're going to have a, we're going to have another big name. Like I said, I'm just not willing to say who it is yet, but it'll be, it'll be good. I'm sure it'll be good. So yeah, don't. Don't say those things until they like actually confirmed and then reconfirmed that they're actually coming. Oh no, no, they're, 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 they've confirmed they're coming. We just have to figure out what we're exactly doing on our end. So as far as stops and stuff, but no, they're, they're coming. Okay. I, I started, I started that process back in October. So. Very cool. Very cool. Um, we got to get out of here. Where can people find you and what would you like to end with? Oh, they can find me lots of places, uh, on Facebook, either at, uh, Tyrell Owens or at a double O grazing company. Find me on YouTube on double O grazing company. Find me on TikTok on at Tyrell Owens. Um, let's see. I'm on Twitter. Tire, I don't know what my handle is. Just look up Tyrell Owens and surely I'll pop up. But, um, yeah, I, it, you'll see on YouTube, you, you can find my life story from the far, the operation on YouTube. So, um, but otherwise, yeah, I, that's about it, I guess. I mean, if you, you message me, I'll respond eventually. So. Hey, last thing. Since we're here on Zoom and there are video versions available on YouTube, which is currently a week or two behind and um, also available on Spotify so people can see this. I know that you're using a virtual background mm -hmm. and you wouldn't be using it if the flag box in the background wasn't important. Can you, can you tell me about that and who that person was? Uh, so that is my uh, grandpa bio. So that'd be my mom's dad. Um, so... You, you, you might get a little, well, I don't know. You might get a little pushback or something on this. I don't know how active your commentaries are, but so he, uh, he served, he was in the first cavalry division. He got drafted. He turned 18 in December of 1944, got drafted shortly thereafter, um, done, uh, basic training down in Fort hood, Texas, I believe. And so he was actually training for the invasion of Japan. And okay. so, uh, I never apologize for the fact that we dropped a bombs on Japan because I'm a history major. I know what that would have been like. I listened to podcasts. I listened to books. My grandpa would have been in the invasion of Japan. So I, he I was agree. actually, I agree. It was necessary. I agree that it was, uh, I'm not going to say necessary. Maybe I should say necessary. It was the tool that we had in the toolbox that was going to make things stop. Yes. I mean, and so horrific absolutely horrific pandora's box we can never close again but we probably would have lost two to two and a half million people if we would have tried to invade japan yeah yeah and so he was actually in the occupation he actually was stationed in tokyo for a year and a half or something like that i mean he got to go and tour the imperial palace he climbed um the mountain that's right outside of tokyo i can't think of the name of it off the top of my head um fuji yeah. Yeah. Yep. He, he climbed that. Um, if, if that's wrong, so it's he, wrong. It's the only mountain in Japan. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's the name of it. I can't, like I said, I can't remember for sure, but, um, 
he was always kind of a, a hero to me growing up. And so I, I got his, uh, my aunt's, my aunt's, no, sorry, my, well, my aunt, uncle's son-in-law made that for him. Um, and so it's got his, let me go the other way. It's got his picture. That's his service picture right there. And then that's the last picture at their, oh, what was that? Their 63rd or 64th wedding anniversary. And so after my grandma had it until she passed away and no one else wanted it, or they knew that I wanted it basically that I would keep it. So I, so that's my, uh, my token and will be my forever lasting, uh, memory of his. So. Well, very cool. Thanks. Uh, thank you for sharing, sir. Yep. Nope. I, if you can ask my wife, I always tell her my, my mouth gets me in trouble. <laughs> good, oh. thing you, good thing you don't have a podcast. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It has crossed my mind, but I'll, I'll just stick with the YouTube. I, I, I would like, and, that, and that's another thing with, because I have more time with the, not having the livestock, um, or not having the sheep. So we're finally getting chickens living in town or that's the plan to get chickens anyways, uh, doing more gardening. And I done my first, uh, I guess interview kind of like this on YouTube with, a. Tom Martin, what was that, two or three weeks ago? And I'm planning on trying to do more of those with different people that I know, different guys that have had an influence on me, people that I consider consider friends and connections. And so that's so that's what I always tell people is I am beyond blessed with uh, getting involved in soil health because I've made a lot of friends and acquaintances. I mean, and to me, that's what it's, that's one of the most important things about it is just in, increasing the size of your network and getting a good network put together. So. For sure. And it's one of the things I love about being involved with, with soil health and things like soil health, you and no-till on the plains, high plains, no-till, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the conservation districts, Kansas grazing land coalition, like we're all, we're all, everybody's starting to align and move in the same direction. And it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I always tell people, you know, I, I mean, I was, we were managing a little over a hundred acres. I had 60 head of ewes and I don't get treated any differently by people who are managing 7,000 acre ranch with however many head of cattle that you're managing or whether it's uh, Michael Thompson farming a good sized chunk up in Norton County, who's kind of a, I don't want to say he's the face of soil health in Kansas, but I mean, he's, he's the known commodity in soil health within the state of Kansas and I get treated with the same respect as if I was some big shot, quote unquote, big shot farmer. And by no means am I a big shot farmer. I'm not a big shot anything. So it's a good attitude to have. Good attitude to have. All right, bud. I got to get moving. Appreciate your time right. today. Yep. Thanks for having me. I, I, I hope, I hope, uh, hope people weren't too bored. Oh, I think it was great. If they were bored, I guess they usually send me the hate mail anyway. Yeah. Well, that's why I didn't, that's why I didn't give them my email address. <laughs> Fair enough. Mine's redhillsrancher at gmail.com. Send all the hate mail to me. I don't there, care. There you go. All right, gang. I uh, guess that'll do it. Have a great week. We'll see you.